0: Chapter Twenty-Three of Howard's End This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Howard's End by Edward Morgan Forster Chapter Twenty-Three Margaret had no intention of letting things slide. An evening before she left Swanage, she gave her sister a thorough scolding. She censured her, not for disapproving of the engagement, but for throwing over her disapproval a veil of mystery. Helen was equally frank. Yes, she said, with an air of one looking inwards, there is a mystery. I can't help it. It's not my fault. It's the way life has been made. Helen in those days was over-interested in the subconscious self. She exaggerated the punch and Judy aspect of life and spoke of mankind as puppets whom an invisible showman twitches into love and war. Margaret pointed out that if she dwelt on this, she too would eliminate the personal. Helen was silent for a minute and then burst into a queer speech which cleared the air. Go on and marry him. I think you're splendid, and if anyone can pull it off, you will. Margaret denied that there was anything to pull off, but she continued, Yes, there is, and I wasn't up to it with Paul. I can only do what's easy. I can only entice and be enticed. I can't and won't attempt difficult relations. If I marry, it'll either be a man who's strong enough to boss me, or whom I'm strong enough to boss. So I shan't ever marry, for there aren't such men. And heaven help anyone whom I do marry, for I shall certainly run away from him before you can say Jack Robinson. There, because I'm uneducated. But you, you're different. You're a heroine. Oh, Helen, am I? It'd be as dreadful for poor Henry as all that. You mean to keep proportion, and that's heroic. It's Greek, and I don't see why it shouldn't succeed with you. Go on and fight with him and help him. Don't ask me for help or even for sympathy. Henceforth I'm going my own way. I mean to be thorough because thoroughness is easy. I mean to dislike your husband and to tell him so. I mean to make no concessions to Tibby. If Tibby wants to live with me, he must lump me. I mean to love you more than ever. Yes, I do. You and I have built up something real because it is purely spiritual. There is no veil of mystery over us. Unreality and mystery begin as soon as one touches the body. The popular view is, as usual, exactly the wrong one. Our bothers are over tangible things, money, husbands, house hunting. But heaven will work of itself. Margaret was grateful for this expression of affection and answered, Perhaps. All vistas close in the unseen. No one doubts it, but Helen closed them rather too quickly for her taste. At every turn of speech, one was confronted with reality in the absolute. Perhaps Margaret grew too old for metaphysics, and perhaps Henry was weaning her from them, but she felt that there was something a little unbalanced in the mind that so readily shreds the visible. The businessman who assumes that this life is everything, and the mystic, who asserts that it is nothing, fail, on this side and on that, to hit the truth. Yes, I see, dear, it's about halfway between, Aunt Julie had hazarded in earlier years. No, truth, being alive, was not halfway between anything. It was only to be found by continuous excursions into either realm, and no proportion is the final secret, to espouse it at the outset is to ensure sterility. Helen, agreeing here, disagreeing there, would have talked till midnight, but Margaret, with her packing to do, focused the conversation on Henry. She might abuse Henry behind his back, but please would she always be civil to him in company. I definitely dislike him, but I'll do what I can, promised Helen. Do what you can with my friends in return. This conversation made Margaret easier, their inner life was so safe that they could bargain over externals in a way that would have been incredible to Aunt Julie and impossible for Tibby or Charles. There are moments when the inner life actually paid, when years of self-scrutiny, conducted for no ulterior motive, are suddenly of practical use. Such moments are so rare in the West that they come at all promises a fairer future. Margaret, though unable to understand her sister, was assured against estrangement and returned to London with a more peaceful mind. The following morning, at eleven o'clock, she presented herself at the offices of the Imperial and West African Rubber Company. She was glad to go there, for Henry had implied his business rather than described it, and the formlessness and vagueness that one associates with Africa had hitherto brooded over the main sources of his wealth. Not that a visit to the office cleared things up, they were just the ordinary surface scum of ledgers and polished counters and brass bars that began and stopped for no possible reason, of electric light globes blossoming in triplets, of little rabbit hutches faced with glass or wire, of little rabbits. And even when she penetrated to the inner depths, she found only the ordinary table and turkey carpet. And the map over the fireplace did depict the helping of West Africa, and it was a very ordinary map. Another map hung opposite, on which the whole continent appeared, looking like a whale marked out for blubber, and by its side was a door, shut, but Henry's voice came through it, dictating a strong letter. She might have been at the Porphyrian, or Dempster's Bank, or her own wine merchants. Everything seems just alike in these days, but perhaps she was seeing the imperial side of the company, rather than its West African, and imperialism always had been one of her difficulties. One minute called Mr. Wilcox on receiving her name. He touched a bell, the effect of which was to produce Charles. Charles had written his father an adequate letter, more adequate than Evie's, through which a girlish indignation throbbed, and he greeted his future stepmother with propriety. I hope that my wife... How do you do? We'll give you a decent lunch, was his opening. I left instructions, but we live in a rough and ready way. I expect you back to tea, too. "'after you've had a look at Howard's End. "'I wonder what you'll think of the place. "'I wouldn't touch it with tongs myself. "'Do sit down. "'It's a measly little place.' "'I shall enjoy seeing it,' said Margaret, "'feeling, for the first time, shy. "'You'll see it at its worst. but Bryce decamped abroad last Monday "'without even arranging for a charwoman to clean up after him. "'I never saw such a disgraceful mess. "'It's unbelievable.' He wasn't in the house a month. I've got more than a little bone to pick with Bryce, called Henry from the inner chamber. Why did he go so suddenly? Invalid type. Couldn't sleep. Poor fellow. Poor fiddlesticks, said Mr. Wilcox, joining them. He had the impudence to put up notice boards without as much saying, with your leave or by your leave. Charles flung them down. Yes, I flung them down, said Charles, modestly. I've sent a telegram after him, and a pretty sharp one, too. He, and he in person, is responsible for the upkeep of that house for the next three years. keys are at the farm, and we wouldn't have the keys. Quite right. Dolly would have taken them, but I was in, fortunately. What's Mr. Bryce like? asked Margaret. But nobody cared. Mr. Bryce was the tenant, who had no right to sublet. To have defined him further was a waste of time. On his misdeeds they descanted profusely, until the girl who had been typing the strong letter came out with it. Mr. Wilcox added his signature. Now we'll be off, said he. A motor drive, a form of felicity detested by Margaret, awaited her. Charles saw them in, civil to the last, and in a moment the offices of the Imperial and West African Rubber Company faded away. But it was not an impressive drive. Perhaps the weather was to blame, being grey and banked high with weary clouds. Perhaps Hertfordshire is scarcely intended for motorists. Did not a gentleman once motor so quickly through Westmoreland that he missed it? And if Westmoreland can be missed, it will fare ill with a county whose delicate structure particularly needs the attentive eye. Hertfordshire is England at its quietest, with little emphasis of river and hill. It is England meditative. If Drayton were with us again to write a new edition of his incomparable poem, he would sing the nymphs of Hertfordshire as indeterminate of feature, with hair obfuscated by the London smoke. Their eyes would be sad and averted from their fate towards the northern flats, their leader not Isis or Sabrina, but the slowly flowing Lee. No glory of raiment would be theirs, no urgency of dance, but they would be real nymphs. The chauffeur could not travel as quickly as he had hoped, for the great north road was full of Easter traffic. But he went quite quick enough for Margaret, a poor-spirited creature, who had chickens and children on the brain. They're all right, said Mr. Wilcox. They'll learn, like the swallows in the telegraph wires. Yes, but while they're learning, their motors come to stay, he answered. One must get about. Oh, there's a pretty church style. You aren't sharp enough. Well, look out. If the road worries you, ride outward at the scenery. She looked at the scenery. It heaved and merged like porridge. Presently, it congealed. They had arrived. Charles's house on the left. On the right, the swelling forms of the six hills. Their appearance in such a neighborhood surprised her. They interrupted the stream of residences that was thickening up towards Hilton. Behind them she saw meadows and a wood, and beneath them she settled that soldiers of the best kind lay buried. She hated war and liked soldiers. It was one of her amiable inconsistencies. But here was Dolly, dressed up at the nines, standing at the door to greet them, and here were the first drops of the rain. They ran in gaily, and after a long wait in the dining room sat down to the rough and ready lunch, every dish in which concealed or exuded cream. Mr. Bryce was the chief topic of conversation. Dolly described his visit with a key, while her father-in-law gave satisfaction by chaffing her and contradicting all she said. It was evidently the custom to laugh at Dolly. He chaffed Margaret, too, and Margaret, roused from a grave meditation, was pleased and chaffed him back. Dolly seemed surprised and eyed her curiously. After lunch, the two children came down. Margaret disliked babies, but pitted off better with the two-year-old, and sent Dolly into fits of laughter by talking sense to him. "'Kiss them now, and come away,' said Mr. Wilcox. She came, but refused to kiss them. It was such hard luck on the little things,' she said, and though Dolly proffered chorly warly and porgly-woggles in turn, she was obdurate. By this time it was raining steadily. The car came round with the hood up, and again she lost all sense of space. In a few minutes, they stopped and craned open the door of the car. What's happened? asked Margaret. What do you suppose? said Henry. The little porch was close up against her face. Are we there already? We are. Well, I never. And years ago, it seemed so far away. Smiling, but somehow disillusioned, she jumped out, and her impetus carried her to the front door. He was about to open it, when Henry said... That's no good, it's locked. Who's got the key? As he had himself forgotten to call for the key at the farm, no one replied. He also wanted to know who had left the front gate open, since a cow had strayed in from the road and was spoiling the croquet lawn. Then he said, rather crossly, Margaret, you wait in the dry. I'll go down for the key. It isn't a hundred yards. Mayn't I come too? No, I shall be back before I'm gone. Then the car turned away, and it was as if a curtain had risen. For the second time that day she saw the appearance of the earth. There were the green-gauge trees that Helen had once described. There the tennis lawn. There the hedge that would be glorious with dog-roses in June. But the vision now was of black and palest green. Down by the dell-hole more vivid colors were awakening, and lent lilies stood sentinel on its margin, or advanced in battalions over the grass. Tulips were a tray of jewels, she could not see the witch elm tree, but a branch of the celebrated vine, studded with the velvet knobs, had covered the porch. She was struck by the fertility of the soil. She had seldom been in a garden where the flowers looked so well, and even the weeds she was idly plucking out of the porch were intensely green. Why had poor Mr. Bryce fled from all this beauty? For she had already decided that the place was beautiful. Naughty cow! Go away, cried Margaret to the cow, but without indignation. Harder came the rain, pouring out of a windless sky and spattering up from the notice boards of the house agents, which lay in a row on the lawn where Charles had hurled them. She must have interviewed Charles in another world, where one did have interviews. How Helen would revel in such a notion. Charles dead, all people dead, nothing alive but houses and gardens. The obvious dead the intangible alive, and no connection at all between them. Margaret smiled, would that her own fancies were as clear-cut, would that she could deal as high-handedly with the world. Smiling and sighing, she laid her hand upon the door. It opened. The house was not locked up at all. She hesitated. Ought she to wait for Henry? He felt strongly about property might prefer to show her over himself. On the other hand, he had told her to keep in the dry, and the porch was beginning to drip. So she went in, and the draft from inside slammed the door behind. Desolation greeted her. Dirty fingerprints were on the hall windows, blue and rubbish on its unwashed boards. The civilization of luggage had been here for a month, and then decamped. Dining room and drawing room, right and left, were guessed only by their wallpapers. They were just rooms where one could shelter from the rain. Across the ceiling of each ran a great beam. The dining room and hall revealed theirs openly, but the drawing rooms was matchboarded, because the facts of life must be concealed from ladies. Drawing room and dining room and hall how petty the names sounded. Here were simply three rooms where children could play and friend shelter from the rain. Yes, and they were beautiful. Then she opened one of the doors opposite, there were two, and exchanged wallpapers for whitewash. It was the servant's part, though she scarcely recognized that, just rooms again where friends might shelter. The garden at the back was full of flowering cherries and plums. Farther on were hints of the meadow and a black cliff of pines. Yes, the meadow was beautiful. Penned in by the desolate weather, she recaptured the sense of space which the motor had tried to rob from her. She remembered again that ten square miles are not ten times as wonderful as one square mile, that a thousand square miles are not practically the same as heaven. The Phantom of Bigness, which London encourages, was laid forever when she paced from the hall at Howard's End to its kitchen and heard the rains run this way and that where the watershed of the roof divided them. Now Helen came to her mind, scrutinizing half Wessex from the ridge of Purbeck Downs and saying, "You will have to lose something. She was not so sure. For instance, she would double her kingdom by opening the door that concealed the stairs. Now she thought of the map of Africa, of empires, of her father, of the two supreme nations, Streams of whose life warmed her blood, but, mingling, it cooled her brain. She paced back into the hall, and as she did so, the house reverberated. Is that you, Henry, she called. There was no answer, but the house reverberated again. Henry, have you got in? But it was the heart of the house beating, faintly at first, then loudly, martially. It dominated the rain. It is the starved imagination, not the well-nourished, that is afraid. Margaret flung open the door to the stairs. A noise as of drums seemed to deafen her. A woman, an old woman, was descending, with figure erect, with face impassive, with lips that parted and said, dryly, Oh, well, I took you for Ruth Wilcox. Margaret stammered, I... Mrs. Wilcox, I, in fancy, of course, in fancy, you had her way of walking. Good day. And the old woman passed out into the rain. End of chapter 23 Recording by Chris Leslie Heinen in Portland, Oregon and Iowa City, Iowa. Reachable at Chris chrislesleyheinen at gmail.com